You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And so now beginning in verse 57 in Luke chapter 1. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So wherever you are, you may be seated. So in this year, in Advent, we are reflecting on the various songs that were motivated by the birth of our Savior Jesus. And, and what we've said is that the native tongue to the Christian is that of song. It's our primary language. We vent our joy, our awe, our, our admiration to God through song, in praises, through singing. And so, kind of like an instant pot, at a certain point the pressure builds up and we, we have to let it vent out. We have to turn that dial and let it get out of us. And, and sometimes it's messy. Uh, it can take a while, but, but it, the, the steam escaping is the only natural way to get out all of that has been taken within. It's the appropriate way to release all of the pressure from inside. And so it is for the Christian and song. It's not just mere words spoken, but songs sung in awe of our God. And so this week we're going to be looking at the song of Zechariah that was just read for you in Luke 1. And this song is known in church history as the Benedictus. It's the Blessed. Because the song starts with the word blessed and because its content is a blessing to God. And just so I'm clear, I want to give you my main point right up front, right out of the gate. My main point, the, the point of this song, 
is uh, about the long-awaited tender mercy of our God. Zechariah's song is about the long-awaited tender mercy of our God, which, which changes the hearts of sinners. Okay, and, and we're going to unpack that as we work through the text in four points. Salvation's horn, salvation's holiness, salvation's herald, and salvation's heart. Horn, holiness, herald, and heart. And so, point number one, salvation's horn. So, earlier on in the chapter, we have to do a little bit of context here. Earlier on in the chapter, we learn in verses 5 through 24 that the angel Gabriel was sent to Zechariah and, and, and to deliver the news that his, his barren wife was going to give birth to a son. They were going to conceive and give birth to a son. And, and like we learned last week, God doesn't, he doesn't really work the way that we do. He, he, he doesn't work through the magnificent and mighty like we would choose to, but instead he often works through the barren, the broken, and the bothered. And so Gabriel, we pick it up in verse 13, Gabriel tells Zechariah, Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And now, if you think that this is all a little bit unbelievable, that the angel Gabriel would come to Zechariah, a priest in God's temple, come to him in his old age, him and his wife Elizabeth, and tell them that, oh, this, this child that you've been praying for, that you've never been able to have, now that you're old um, and barren, I, I'm going to give him to you. Your prayers have been heard. If you think that this is a little bit fantastic and unbelievable, you're, you're actually not alone. Zechariah didn't believe it either. In fact, Gabriel was, was a little offended at Zechariah's unbelief that he's, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and you're not, you know what? And he sends him out mute, unable to speak, for nine months, until all of these things come to pass, and, and they do come to pass. We, we know that because we just read it. That's where we arrive at our text today. And so like a slow cooker, in, in, instead of the Instapot, in, like a slow cooker, God gave Zechariah nine months of silence to stew. Right? Have you ever used a slow cooker? You, you wake up in the morning, maybe before you go to work or before you go out for the day, and you take all the ingredients and you throw them in the pot, and they just sit, and they just mix together, and all the juices, and, and by the time you get home, what you do is you scoop that out, and it's just a melody of flavor. And so Zechariah was given nine months to sit and stew, to ponder what had been told to him, nine months to think about the majesty of God, nine months to meditate upon his promises. Think about that. If you had nine months of silence, unable to speak for nine months, to think about the beauty and splendor and wisdom of God, if you had nine months, what would be the first thing that comes out of your mouth? Or, or maybe more relatable, uh, if, if you had nine months of forced indoors, nine months forced out of your normal habits, nine months to sit inside and wonder what was going on, maybe during a pandemic, what would come out of your mouth at the end of that time? See, after all of that time, what came out of Zechariah's mouth was a song of blessing and praise to God. It poured out of him. And that's where we pick up our song this morning. Read with me beginning in verse 68. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, when we stop there, one of the first things that we need to notice is how many words are actually in the past tense. Okay, we've got visited, redeemed, raised. Uh, talking about this, this uh, verse right here, uh, John Piper says, Zechariah, who could uh, not believe his wife would have a child, now filled with the Holy Spirit, he is so confident of God's redeeming work and the coming Messiah that he puts it in the past tense. And now I want you to hear these words. Piper says, For the mind of faith, a promised act of God is as good as done. For the mind of faith, a promised act of God is as good as done. Now, that's a word for us. Do you believe that? Now, the second thing I want to point out is Jesus is exactly who was predicted. But he is not who was expected. Now, unlike the final movie in the Harry Potter series, which was not at all what was predicted by the text. Okay, It wasn't anything that the text would have told us. Um, Jesus is exactly what was predicted by the text, but he's just not who the people were expecting. See, Jesus, in verse 69 we read, is the horn of salvation in the house of David. That's Jesus. Matthew and Luke's genealogies make sure that you know that that Jesus comes from David's line. But we kind of have to ask the questions of who was David, and, and and what does it mean that he was the horn of salvation? Now, David was the second king of Israel. He was the king following Saul. Um, and, and God made a promise to David, and we read in 2 Samuel 7, that when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this, pro, uh, this promise. But, but I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees here. When we're asking the question, who is King David? What, what I want us to see is that David was the king of Israel. See, kings were military leaders. They liberated, they fought, they, they, sought, they saved by the power of their might. And so when Zechariah is singing of this horn of salvation in David's line that would come and remove the hand of oppression, what what we need to understand is that Zechariah and his hearers were envisioning a king like David, a king that came with muscle and not meekness, one that came to defeat their physical and not their spiritual enemies, one that came as a terror to their enemies, but a protector of their friends. And so this is where the word horn is really important for us. Uh, because it brings out a lot of Old Testament imagery, okay? Uh, what, what we need to understand is that horn is not like a trumpet. It, it, it's, it's, not, it's not a loud, blasting instrument. No, it's, it's, it's like the horn of a ram or of an ox. The horns on these animals can be used to either protect or destroy. And so similar to, to like the teeth on a German shepherd, if he's your dog, you know, that's a good thing. Those teeth are going to be used to protect you and your family, But if you're an intruder, those teeth are weapons for your own destruction. 
And so that's what the horn is. And, and, and we can look at a couple of spots to see this. In one spot in 2 Samuel 22, we read, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. And so this song is, is, is also found in Psalm 18. And David penned it um, when the Lord uh, delivered him from his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so we see here, though, that God is the horn of his salvation, and it's accompanied by shield and stronghold and refuge. And so this horn of his, is, is a comfort to him. It's a protector. The horn was used as David's defense against his enemies. And another example is in Psalm 132, where we read, In Zion I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. See, here we have a direct prophecy about the horn of salvation coming through David's line. And God's crown will shine on him, but he will clothe his enemies with shame. This, this horn will act as a king is expected to act, come to shame and defeat the enemies of God's people. And so th this is what Zechariah's uh, hearers and what Zechariah, likely himself, would have been envisioning even as he's singing these prophetic words. But remember, Jesus is everything predicted, but he's just not who the people were expecting. The people didn't realize that their greatest enemy was not Rome. If Christ came as a king with a sword first, he would have had to conquer his own people too. See, we read in Ephesians that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we read in Romans 3 that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And in Romans 5 that we were God's enemies. So without God's gracious intervention in Christ upon his first advent, we would have been on the business end of that horn. Yet, yet, through faith, because God is rich in mercy, he has saved us. In his first advent, Jesus came to win through weakness. He, he came to conquer from a cross. And that leads us to our second point of salvation's holiness. And would you look with me in verses 72 through 75 to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. All right, so we've seen that in these verses, Jesus is the horn of salvation, and that horn was used to skewer Satan, sin, and death so that we would be free to serve him without fear. See, Jesus Christ was born to die, J.R. Packer writes, and, and he was born to die because God was remembering his covenant with Abraham. God was remembering that he vowed, even to Abraham, all those years ago, in his mercy, to withhold from us the punishment that we deserved, and instead take it upon himself. See, there's this spot in the movie, Planes, Fire, and Rescue. I've got two young boys, and so we watch a lot of Disney Pixar. But there's this spot in Planes, Fire, and Rescue where, where Dusty Crophopper, who's the main character, um, is, is kind of, he's, he's going through the fire academy, essentially. 
and he is with Blade, who's a fire ranger and his trainer, and they're out and they get caught in a wildfire. And so they decide, as they're caught in this wildfire, to take shelter in an abandoned mine as the fire passes by them. That's the only option they have left. They can't get away from it, so they have to just let it pass by. And so as the fire is passing by them, in the moment of the most intense heat and pain and suffering, Blade, the trainer, moves in front of Dusty to shield him from the flames, to shield him from the pain, to take it upon himself. But see, the thing is that they're stuck out in this fire to begin with, because Dusty made some bad choices. Dusty didn't listen to Blade. Dusty was going at it on his own, thinking that he knew what was better, that he could figure it out on his own. And so if anything, Dusty should have been the one to step in front of Blade, not the other way around. But that's not what we see. Instead, Blade shows his mercy by keeping the punishment from Dusty and instead taking it upon himself and nearly dying in his place. As you could imagine, this exchange changed Dusty. How, how could it not change Dusty? See, when you understand all that Advent means, that the incarnation is, is Jesus' first steps down the path that leads to Calvary's cross, and that your sin and that my sin is what held Jesus there, it has to change you. It has to change you. Now, it, it, see, if you're, unleft, if you're left unchanged by that, if, if that does not change you, then I, I, have to, I have to imagine that you probably have a low view of sin. You think maybe that sins are, are some of these bad things that you've done. You're generally a good person, but sins are some bad things that you've done, and, and Jesus came and righted those bad things, and now you're just a fully good person. But if you have a low view of sin, what that ultimately means is that you're going to have a very, very low view of God's grace. You are not going to see the splendor and majesty of God's mercy to us in Christ. And so if, if you're left unchanged by God's grace, if you're left unchanged by that, then I'd have to say that you really just don't believe it. Not fully anyway. And, and I have to say also that I don't think that this, this is not necessarily a condemnation. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. It's not necessarily a condemnation. We should regularly all be saying, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Acknowledging the fact that we do not believe him fully as we ought to and asking him to help us in that. But again, as we see that we've been delivered from the hand, the grip, the authority, the sway, the power of sin, our true enemy, that we've been delivered from that by Christ how can you not then turn and offer him everything? How can you not offer him everything? How can you continue to hold parts of yourself back from God? How can you say that, you know what, I'll, I'll give you these portions over here because, you know, they kind of were already in line with what Christianity is. And so, like, I have no problem giving you authority over those things. But these things over here, I'm going to keep to myself. I, I need to hold these to myself. How, how can you not offer yourself fully to him in service? in perfect holiness and righteousness, verse 75 says. See, one theologian writes that holiness and righteousness simply implies the whole of God's law. It means everything. It's both tables of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's perfect love for God, and it's perfect love for neighbor. Christ delivering us from the hand of oppression from our enemies frees us to actually serve him 
as we've been called to. We were created to serve him in this way, and he's liberated us so that we can, with our whole selves, from a pure heart, free from the enemy's tyranny. But even though we're free, too many of us, like I said, continue to hold back. We, we place our faith in Christ and then portion off parts of our lives and of our hearts to say that you can have authority over this, but, but this one's for me. And, and friends, that's just not the message of Advent. See, God gave himself in Christ to us, all of himself. He did not hold back one bit of himself from us, yet we live our lives believing that we can and should keep back parts for ourselves from him. See, but I'm telling you today, God is not honored by this service. He, he is not honored by our half measures. In fact, um, as Malachi, the prophet, would say, in Malachi 1, verse 8, he says, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And, and when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? See, when we refuse to give God our best, he doesn't say, okay, that's not great. That's not what I asked for, but I'll take it. He calls it evil. Evil. See, friends, I know that life is hard. I know that there are real pains, real anxieties, real worries in life that cause us to want to hold back from God and say, I need to take this into my own control. I don't know if I can trust you. And I know that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But I need you to hear me. Satan has been defanged. Okay, he's, he's, he's prowling like a roaring lion. He's screaming, but he's been skewered upon the horn of our salvation. That horn, it was run through him. See, when you've been changed by God's mercy, liberated to serve him without fear, you find yourself called into a new and a beautiful work, a work of holiness and righteousness for all of our days. And so that leads us to point number three, Salvation's Herald. As we continue to move through the text, verses 76 and 77 say, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so these two verses are the little bit that this song is actually about John. See, John Calvin writes, To be called here means to be considered and openly acknowledged as the prophet of God. A, a secret calling of God had already taken place. And so John himself is, is the fulfillment of this prophecy right here in these verses. We, we know that through the prophet Malachi, God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And Jesus himself tells us that this is John. In case we had any doubts, in Matthew 11 and Luke 7, Jesus says, That prophecy... It's about John. But the purpose, and this is what we need to see, the purpose of John's vocation was not to be great himself. Though he was great, right? Jesus calls him the greatest born of women, which, in case you were curious, means everyone. Okay, he's the greatest born of women, but, but that, honestly, that's a sermon for a different time, but I'll give you this one for free, at least. Okay, we, all of us, we have greatness inside of us. We desire to be great, and that's not a bad thing. You want to be a great employee, you want to be a great husband, a wife, um, be a great pastor, whatever it may be. We want to be great at our jobs, great at our lives, great in the things that we feel called to. 
But I need you to hear this. The point of your life is not to be great yourself, but to point to our great King. The point of your life is not to be great in and of yourself, but to make much of our great Savior. And so we pick that back up in, in John here. Now, now John's job, as I mentioned, was not to be great himself, but instead to point towards the tender mercy of God in Christ. Right? John the Baptist famously said, he must increase and I must decrease. His job was to prepare the way for God in the hearts and minds of his people, to give knowledge of salvation. And so we see that John's ministry is actually a lot like what we are called to as Christians, right? If you are in Christ, then that means a secret calling of God, as Calvin put it, has been placed upon your life as well, from eternity past, in fact. We too are sent out to give knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. And right, we read this even, the Apostle Paul wrote, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And Jesus himself sends us out to make disciples of all nations. And, and in the book of Acts, Paul says, The Lord himself commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But, but what we need to see in John here, and we certainly need to see it of ourselves as well, and, and so hear me on this one, is you cannot save anyone. You cannot save anyone. It is the tender mercy of our God that saves. And if you don't settle that fact, you're going to spend all of your time trying to do something that you simply are not capable of, right? It's like me trying tirelessly to dunk. I just was not built for it. It's not going to happen. And once you settle that, you can move into what you have been called to, See, John knew that he couldn't save people, but in, in, instead, like the balloons tied to the mailbox out front, he was just letting people know where the party was. He was just telling everybody, the party's inside. He's just letting everyone know where salvation is found. And that is what we've been called to as well. All right, fourth and finally, verses 78 and 79. Because salvation's heart, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, John's voice was to be the one proclaiming in the dark cold of the night that the bright warmth of the sun was coming, but he couldn't make the sun rise. Malachi 4.2 points to Jesus uh, when the prophet writes of the sun of righteousness that will rise with healing in its wings. And, and, and so Jesus is, that's about Jesus and his, his, his healing is found in his tender mercy. See, God's mercy shows up a couple of times in our passage, but here it's referred to as his tender mercy. See, most preachers um, and teachers place the emphasis of this passage upon the horn of salvation. And, and I would agree with them. I, I, I spent the bulk of my time on that point as well. But the 19th century preacher C.H. Spurgeon sees the words tender mercy as the text's real key. He wrote, To me these words gleam with kindly light. I see in them a soft radiance 
as of those matchless pearls whereof the gates of heaven are made. There is an exceeding melody to my ear as well as to my heart in that word tender. See, he believed that if we don't understand what God's tender mercy means, then we're going to miss the whole point of the passage. If we don't understand what tender mercy means, we're not going to truly understand what the horn of salvation is. We're not, we're not going to truly understand the, the holiness that we've been called into, and we're, we're not going to truly understand what we've been called to herald. See, the word tender um, can just as easily be translated uh, bowels or heart or inward parts. It's, it's the same word that's used in Acts 1 to describe the death of Judas, that he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And, and see, Luke wrote Acts as well, so we, we may have reason to believe that he used the same word intentionally in both places. But regardless, ultimately what Luke is getting at is that God's mercy toward his people is part of who he is. It's his gut instinct. It's, it's his deepest feelings toward us. Spurgeon goes on to say, I call your attention to the word bowels because it, it seems to me not only to mean tenderness, but much more. The mercy of the heart is, of course, the mercy of his great tenderness, the mercy of his infinite gentleness and consideration. But other thoughts also come forth from the expression, like bees from a hive. It means the mercy of God's very soul. The heart is the seat and the center of life, and mercy is to God as his own life. And so what he's saying is that for God to be merciful, hear me on this, for God to be merciful simply means for God to be. It, it simply means for him to exist. It's so deeply seated in who he is that his mercy gushes out of him. And for his beloved... God's almighty power, his, his omnipotence, what we would usually think about as being channeled towards his judgment, his, his horn, is focused upon you in his tender mercy. All of his infinite power focused upon you in mercy. That horn is your refuge, not your rival. That horn is your ally, not your adversary. And so the question that I want to leave you with this morning, is do you believe this? Do you believe that God's deepest disposition toward you is his tender mercy? Even when you sin, even, even in your unbelief, in your struggles, do you believe in those times, the times that you feel your weakest and furthest away from God is the time that he is most near to you in the tenderness of his mercy? And if you do, how is that changing your life? It cannot leave you unchanged. See, this song is about the life-changing tender mercy of God. And this song is the story of Advent. It's a song of blessing and praise for all God has done through the incarnation of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a song of God's gracious salvation of sinners. And it's a song that points us forward to the day when He will come again when the full brightness and warmth of his Son will shine upon his redeemed in his tender mercy. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we...